Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohallam. And this is our 2022 end of year holiday extravaganza episode. (laughs) Yes. Happy New Year and Merry whatever you like to celebrate. In the spirit of holiday giving, we have a present for you. Which, let's be honest, is also a present for us. Oh my God, yes. This is one of my very favorite kinds of presents, and I hope it's one of yours too. Here goes. At the end of almost all the interviews we conducted this year, we asked our guests, What's one book you love and why do you love it? We didn't include their answers in the episodes because we were hoarding the audio for your holiday present. And so now we present to you with our gratitude for another year of book dreaming, a fabulous collection of recordings of two dozen book recommendations. Ah, rapture. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, it gets better. You don't need to write anything down because we've listed the books and the people who recommended them in our show notes. So convenient. Indeed. Okay, let's get started. First up is a recommendation from Monica Guzman, who wrote a book called I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. I adored talking to Monica, which may not come as a surprise given the subtitle of her book. She's warm and present and deeply curious about what other people have to say. The novel she recommends is one of those books I've been meaning and wanting to read forever, and now I will. I just reread The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, who's a Brazilian author. I finished it in Troy, New York a couple weeks ago over a glass of white wine as the sun was going down. I was there for a speaking engagement. I walked to the hotel and the whole world came alive. It's one of those books that makes you realize the beauty that's all around you and the possibility that's all around you. It's an allegory. It's a simple story in the desert about a shepherd who goes and and chases this wild dream, literally something he dreamed about finding a treasure and he decides to give it all up and go and seek. It's an extraordinary story and it's classic and it's beautiful. And it just gave me that boost of life. Yeah. And who doesn't want to need that right now? I know it was awesome. (laughs) And I'll tell you one thing. So on my walk home, because I had been lit by that book, for some reason, I want to touch all the leaves on the trees on this walk by the Hudson River. And then all of a sudden, I get to a tree, and I'm about to touch a leaf. And it looks like there's this little fuzzy like children's toy on the tree. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And I realize it's a sleeping bird. <gasps> I have never in my life seen a sleeping bird. And it was yeah, I could see it just kind of expand and contract. I could see its little feet wrapped around a twig, and it was a sleeping bird. I I sat there and stared at that sleeping bird breathe for five minutes, and I just did nothing else, and it was lovely. You probably know Iranian writer Azar Nafisi from her first book, Reading Lolita in Tehran. We talked to her about the growing threat of authoritarianism and her newest book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. When you hear Azar tell the story of 1001 Nights, one of the most famous Middle Eastern folktales of all time, you'll understand why reading literature can be a powerful form of resistance. As you know the story, there is a king uh, who actually the citizens love, but his uh, queen uh, betrays him with a slave. 
and the king is so disenchanted and so disillusioned that he kills uh, the queen and her lover. And from then on, every night as a revenge, he marries a virgin and um, kills her in the morning as the cock crows. Shahrazad is the daughter of the wazir, sort of the prime minister. She is beautiful, but that is not the point. She's wise. And she tells her father, let me handle the king. She marries him, and at the night of her wedding, she tells the king, I have a sister, and every night I tell her a story. Could I tell her a story? And the king agrees to it. As the cock crows, Shahrzad leaves the story unfinished. The king wants to hear what happens next, so he doesn't kill her. This goes on for a thousand and one nights. And by the end of one thousand and one nights, he's cured. Because she gives him the ability to become curious, to come out of himself and want to know others. Through wanting to know others, she bestows on him the gift of empathy where rather than killing the queen, he should try to understand the queen. So uh, I like Shahzad because it brings to us the importance of these two important traits, curiosity and empathy. Sarah Graham has written a crime fiction series featuring a detective, Claire DeWitt, with a phenomenal, memorable voice. So it comes as no surprise that she recommends a book with a protagonist who likewise makes an indelible impression. I read this book a while ago and my TBR list is already too long, but after listening to Sarah rave about it, how can I not read it again? It has gone straight to the top of my list. One of my all time favorites is True Grit by Charles Portis. It is such a good book. It has such a unique character and so suspenseful. And he is such an unusual writer. And he has this beautiful plain spoken style. Um, oh, and her voice is so great. I mean, talk about a character that you will follow anywhere you don't care. Exactly. So unique and yet so believable and so flawed. And you see her making mistakes because she's a 14 year old kid. So even though she's incredibly smart and incredibly brave, she's still also only 14 and not very worldly. And then you, as the reader, can also see things going on with the adults around her that she can't quite understand. So you see with between the two men that they are sort of vying for her attention, not necessarily in a sexual way. She's, you know, a kid, but just because they're lonely people and she's there, that they are sort of trying to compete a bit to impress her and get her attention. And I think the best opening and best closing of maybe any book I've ever read. Journalist Justin Fenton has been doing important investigative reporting for nearly two decades. His first book, We Own This City, A True Story of Crime, Cops, and Corruption, detailed the police corruption scandal that exploded in Baltimore after the death of Freddie Gray, and served as the basis for the HBO series of the same name. When my nephew Max, who grew up in Baltimore, heard that we were interviewing Justin, he could hardly contain himself. Well, this one's for you, Max. <laughs> Justin recommends a book by David Simon, another Baltimore journalist you may have heard of, whose book Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, inspired a TV show by the same name. David Simon is also one of the creators of the legendary HBO series, The Wire. It's just such an amazing 
piece of journalism. I'm not aware of anything similar to it in law enforcement in terms of somebody who spent like an entire year immersed in a police department and police culture. He takes on so much in that book and the dialogue, you know, you're, you're right there. It's just so impressive. David took time off from the Baltimore Sun and actually had to register as like an inter- a police intern. They knew that he was a journalist and what he was doing, but they said, listen, we're not just going to let you you know, tag along. We want you to actually become like a police intern. So, so for a year, yeah. he had like a badge and wow. he was immersed in that squad. You know what really sucks? When prepping for an interview includes cooking multiple delicious dishes from an incredible new cookbook. That's what I had to suffer through when we interviewed chef and food activist Bryant Terry about his book, Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora. Bryant had no trouble picking a favorite book by his favorite food writer. My only trouble is deciding which recipe to try first. One of my favorite books uh, is The Taste of Country Cooking by Edna Lewis, the grand dam of Southern cooking, as she's often referred. Um, That book, you know, this kind of cookbook as a memoir, you know, has really inspired my whole body of work. And I also just felt this kinship with Edna Lewis. You know, she came from Freetown, Virginia, this town in Virginia that was founded by formerly enslaved people. And it was just this all black thriving community and having grown up in this, you know, really just beautiful and loving, uh, thriving middle-class Black community in Memphis. There was that kinship, you know, and also coming from a family who, you know, lived in the rural South. And then, you know, she moved to New York to really find herself. And she had done a a diversity of things. I think she was a seamstress for Oscar de la Renta. She was a secretary for some communist newspaper. She, you know, worked at Cafe Nicholson. She was a chef. She's done all these brilliant things. And then she wrote several books. And, you know, I I just really saw a similar path. You may know, if you've been listening to Book Dreams for a while, that any time I hear the word Neanderthal, and by the way, I used to always say Neanderthal until we interviewed this guest I'm about (laughs) to describe. So when we had the chance to talk to archaeologist Rebecca Rag Sykes about her book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art, I practically swooned. And then Rebecca goes ahead and gifts us with a recommendation for another book about these ancient hominids. You'll remember William Golding as the author of Lord of the Flies. Turns out we should also know about his book, The Inheritors. He imagines a meeting between a group of Neanderthals and a group of Homo sapiens, but it's not explicitly clear until the end, really, (laughs) that's what's actually happening. And the book is actually much more about really broad themes of humanity and destiny. Um, But what's wonderful about the book is it's so different, I think, to anything that had been written about Neanderthals really before. He really tries to inhabit and communicate a different way of thinking, a different mind, and uses really beautiful, clever, sparse language to do that. And you see the story from the perspective of one of the Neanderthals almost until the very end. And I won't spoil it for people, but there is a a climax and, you know, it's very dramatic. And then the very last chapter, the perspective switches and you see the Neanderthals 
as this group of homo sapiens see them. And everything that you've come to relate to with the Neanderthals, their emotions, their care for each other, the richness of their world is kind of swept away under this really harsh, brutal gaze of the Homo sapiens people who basically just see them as animals and they call them like devils. And it's a complete shift. It's just a wonderful book. Kevin Birmingham has written a fascinating book about Dostoevsky's absolutely incredible life. That book is called The Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. I learned so much from that book and from our conversation with Kevin, and I'm happy to have this additional guidance from him when it comes to Dostoevsky's writing. If you haven't read anything by Dostoevsky and you just want to dip your toe into the world of Dostoevsky, the perfect place to start is probably Notes from Underground because it's very short. We're talking about you know, maybe 100, 120 pages. But effectively what it is, it's, it's almost like a dry run for crime and punishment. It's such a weird book because it's in two parts. And the first part is just a voice. Nothing at all actually happens for the first 30 pages or so. But the voice is just so compelling. You hear the way his mind works, and it just draws you in. And then we have a second part that does have action to it. But it's a good beginning for seeing how consciousness was rendered by Dostoevsky. A lot of the the whole project of novel writing, you know, just as its history, at least for the first 200 years, is starting to get closer and closer to rendering consciousness. And that really starts to ramp up in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. Dostoevsky is on that upward trajectory of coming up with new ways for having us get closer and closer to what a mind is like when it's by itself. It's a great book, Notes from Underground, a would-be radical who is trapped in various ways, ways that I will not divulge. As a private investigator, Erica Krauss helped establish that a Division I college football team had an illegal, ingrained culture of sexual assault and harassment. She wrote about that experience in a memoir, Tell Me Everything, that the New York Times called beautifully written, disturbing, and affecting. I really enjoyed hearing Erica recommend the work of one of the people who helped shape her writing. So I had this teacher named Lucia Berlin, and she is a short story writer. She's passed away now. But during her lifetime, maybe 200 people total read her, you know, and mostly they were her students. So during her lifetime, very obscure writer, but she was one of those, like, she did it her way. She wasn't going to compromise her art for anyone. So she published in this microscopic press, and her students adored her. We all thought she was a genius. She was so kind to us. She was so encouraging, and she was this sort of diva of pain that we all aspired to be and not be at the same time because <laughs> she suffered so deeply. Um, and then I think 11 years after her death, her good friend, Stephen Emerson, collected her work and he just you know threw it at Farrar Strauss and said, what do you think? Will you publish this? They did. She became a bestseller, like an international bestseller. And I think she would have found it very funny that her work was so lauded long after she died and she died in obscurity and poverty you know she had a very hard life and poor health and she was an alcoholic um i think one of my very very favorite books is this collected work of hers it's called a manual for cleaning women every story in here 
just rocks me. It's just a beautiful book. I hope everyone reads it. Julie and I both loved Angie Cruz's novel, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, which just came out this fall and, not at all surprisingly, has made it to tons of the best of the year lists. The main character of that book is as memorable a hero as you'll ever find. The novel Angie recommends sounds intriguing in an altogether different way. Take a listen. The book that I love the most this year, I think, is The Man Who Could Move Clouds. It's just such a gorgeous book. It's a book where she um, has amnesia and finds out that one of her family members also had amnesia. And she starts to piece together this story that is about really a play with time. The magical is real. And the real is magical and it's memoir. And it's so experimental in the ways that she wrote it and how it all comes together. You really get caught in the language, but also she enacts in the ways that she tells the story, what it's like to have amnesia and be in, in connection with ghosts and people in other countries. So I highly recommend this to anyone who loves a good story, but also someone who really wants to study time and language. Mark Epstein is a psychiatrist and the author of a number of books about the interaction between Buddhism and psychotherapy, including, most recently, The Zen of Therapy. It was fascinating to read in that book about how he infuses Buddhist principles in his psychotherapy sessions with patients. Now he's recommending another very different book that was also shaped during therapy sessions with him. I've heard phenomenal things from various sources about this book, and it's in the pile on my nightstand. I just have to steal myself to read it. One book that I definitely love that comes right to mind is a book called Wave by a woman named Sonali Dharaniyagala a Sri Lankan and British woman uh, who was in Sri Lanka with her English husband and her two children and her parents and her uh, babysitter during the tsunami of 2004. They were at a nature resort, at an eco-resort in a national park when the wave came, hence the name of the book. And um, everybody died but her. They were all washed up in the water and she surfaced and held on to a tree branch. Uh, but uh, her children, her husband, her parents, everybody perished. Somehow, a year later, she ended up in my office and uh, part of the therapy became the book. She really wrote an extraordinary book that ostensibly is about the tragedy, but really is about love. It's so much about what, you know, what does survive destruction and uh, what can we do about it? James Gilbert makes book recommendations for a living at Haywood Hill Booksellers in London. Don't you want to know what he says when asked about a book he loves? One of the best things I've ever read, which I only read as an adult, I never read it as a child, is Watership Down. Uh, it's difficult to imagine how it could be better, to be honest, maybe 10 times as long. Um, it's a really touching, beautiful, and achingly sad book but so fun and so exciting and so fascinating at the same time. It's a book which really sort of captures the beauty and the wonder of the natural world. 
supposedly not from a human's point of view, but obviously it's written by a human. It really sort of like, not necessarily puts things into perspective, but telling this epic story from the perspective of these tiny creatures, these tiny rabbits fighting for survival. It, it's brilliant. And there's, there's also um, a massive sort of backdrop of folklore and mythology, which Richard Adams created. He's written this sort of folkloric history of rabbits which is just totally believable um as mad as it sounds yeah it's it has everything i think that a book requires to be um a masterpiece that sits with you for years and years it's the the most easily recommendable book i think going it's just spectacular Ellen McGarrahan was a reporter at the Miami Herald in 1990 when she witnessed the execution of a man who'd been convicted of killing two police officers. Questions were raised about whether he was in fact guilty, and Ellen ultimately reinvestigated the murders of the police officers, trying to determine whether she'd witnessed the execution of an innocent man. You only have to read a page of Ellen's book about her investigation— Two Truths and a Lie, or listen to a minute of our interview with her to get a sense of how thoughtful she is. It shines through even in her recommendation of Susanna Clarke's latest novel, Piranesi. The narrator is a, a person who's in an enormous house. It's told in the form of a journal, and it's just this extraordinary exploration of the world. From the very first sentence, it's its own language. There's a naivete and an innocence to the voice, which is amazing in the times that we're living in now. And the question, it's a mystery why the narrator is there and what the house is and what will happen. And the thing that struck me about it is it's essentially a book about occupying the world with wonder and exploring it with openness and seeing the good in everything and elevating everyday life into the extraordinary. It just can't possibly be more of a tonic for the world as it is now. And it does seem to me that this book is a really, just a beautiful history of how we all live to a certain extent inside our own worlds, certainly in our own bodies, but within our own realities too, and that they are what we can make of them. She has this beautiful line in the book, the beauty of the house is immeasurable it's kindness infinite. And that just seems to me like a form of spirituality, I think, that it's just like what a gift life is. Anthropologist James Sussman wrote one of those books that I can't stop quoting. It's called Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. The number of fun facts and fascinating theories that I learned from reading it and from talking with him is just mind-boggling. So, of course, I'm intrigued by what James describes as, quote, one of the most profoundly affecting books he's ever read. Adam Hochschild's book, King Leopold's Ghost, which is a book about the Belgian Congo and about King Leopold and really the genocide that took place there in the 19th century after the Berlin Conference. And effectively, the Congo was set up as a company owned by the king of Belgium. And it's a truly wonderful book about everything from the end of slavery to the virtues of campaigning to this extraordinary period in history that you know still echoes in our lives now. And it is also a piece of history as it should be written. It's a book which is 
not only an extraordinary and engaging tale with very engaging characters. This was sort of the era of Heart of Darkness. And, you know, the key character being Roger Casement, who investigated the terror on the river and who was later to be executed in the Easter upri- after the Easter Uprising in Ireland in 1916. But it's an extraordinary story of sort of resilience and change and transition. And also a sort of grim reminder of, you know, how differently human beings can think about things to the way that we do do now. But yeah, it's a truly invigorating read. It's a grim read, but it's also one I strangely look forward to going back to every few years. We spoke with Vaishnavi Patel about her debut novel, Gai K, which is a feminist retelling of the Indian epic, the Ramayana. Adventure abounds in Gai K, as it does in the middle grade novel that Vaishnavi recommends, one Eve and I both love, that features anthropomorphic spiders, rats, cockroaches, as well as people, all in an underworld that's on the brink of war. I am going way back, way, way back to elementary middle school. And I'm going to say Gregory the Overlander by Suzanne Collins. Because not only is this book amazing, like it tells an amazing story. It's so fun. I've reread it as an adult and I'm like, wow, this really holds up. But just the, the themes that it explores, war, prejudice, genocide, poverty, all of these things in such a way that's accessible to young people while still being an amazing story that just sucks you in. And it's a book that I think about regularly all the time and have since I first read it. I mean, my sister, younger sister and I talk about this book at least like once every two months, which for adults is a lot. (laughs) Jack Parlett's book, Fire Island, A Century in the Life of an American Paradise, sets a hundred years of queer history against the backdrop of an iconic location. It's one of those books that tells the story of a place and its people in rich, evocative detail, which is no surprise given that Jack is a poet as well as a writer and a Cambridge professor. I loved hearing Gianfranco's conversation with Jack, and now I'm eager to read the book Jack recommends, Out of the Shadows, Reimagining Gay Men's Lives by Walt Odets. Odets is a clinical psychologist who sort of specialized in working with gay men over the course of his career. And this book tells and weaves together the stories of the people that he's worked with, has spoken with, patients, friends, lovers. I love this book with my whole heart. And I had the feeling when I first read it of, yeah, something having changed within me. And and I recognized a lot of myself in it, like the stories that he was telling about gay men over the years that he's spoken to and worked with. I could see so much of my own experience in theirs, but it also in focusing in on the like particulars of individuals lives, it tells this much larger story about shame really. And about the capacity to heal from it. Jack Sipes is one of my father's oldest friends. So I've been hearing stories about him my whole life, but because Jack lives in Minnesota and I grew up in New Jersey, I'd never had a chance to speak with Jack until our conversation with him for book dreams. And what a conversation. Jack isn't just one of the leading scholars of children's literature in the world. He's also a consummate storyteller himself. Well, after decades of writing and lecturing about children's books, Jack has started publishing them. 
His imprint, Little Mole and Honey Bear, has a mission to preserve the things that make us human and stand up to forces that would tear our society apart. Here's Jack talking about Little Mole and Honey Bear's most recent book. I'll tell you what my most recent book is and why I love it and why it made an impression on me. It stuck with me when I read it in French, I don't think about 20 years ago, uh, I came across a book with the title Tistu. It was all about a young boy whose father was a manufacturer of weapons and ammunition. And uh, Tistu, he's about nine or 10 years old, discovers that he has green thumbs and that these magical green thumbs can create flowers, plants, trees, and so on and so forth. And he eventually prevents his father from selling weapons because he covers all the weapons with flowers and, and, and grass and weeds. And, and it stuck with me. It just stuck with me. Speaking of children's books, I love that Matthew Hangold's Hetling recommended not one, but two of them. His baby was just 12 weeks old when we spoke to him, and I felt like Matt was having the same experience I did when my children were born, just totally reveling in the joy of reconnecting with the books I'd loved when I was young, and of discovering so many new treasures that had been written in the years since. Before we go to Matt, I should also mention that he's an award-winning journalist who wrote A Libertarian Walks into a Bear, the utopian plot to liberate an American town. It's a fascinating true story about a bunch of radical libertarians who tried to take over a town that has an out-of-control bear problem, and how those two things were not unrelated. One of my very favorite children's fiction books that I don't think gets enough love is The Pushcart War by Jean Merrill. It was written in the 60s. It's a fantastic, like satirical, political narrative viewed through the uh, eyes of, of some pushcart vendors who were fighting with some truckers over the rights to be on the streets in New York City. Really great stuff. Uh, favorite picture book just written called Earworm by a woman named Joe Knowles. So good. I've had so much fun reading it to my 12-week-old son. He's only 12 weeks old, and he's already like, he's into this book, which is fantastic. Julie and I both adored, with a capital A, arts critic Margot Jefferson's new memoir, Constructing a Nervous System. It's a book that's hard to describe, but easy to admire and relish, which is a description we could also apply to Margot herself and our conversation with her. Margot recommends Lewis Carroll's classic Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, Hearing her describe them may give you a hint of why we enjoyed talking to her so much. I have very happy memories of having it read to me by my mother, who was a very good reader, and learning to read it at the same time. Emily Dickinson said, much madness is divinest sense, much nonsense is divinest sense. <laughs> and I love the aggression you know, and the seeming decorum. I love the balance of poems and prose. I love the um, absolute insistence on fantasy in the, and on eruptive feelings, you know, being given shape um, and pattern, you know, being given their own, their own music. It just, it utterly delights me. A lot of the prose seems, you know, very kind of 19th century um, orderly, but it plays a lot particularly in the poems, with funny sounds, you know, and with, and with moving words around. So, yeah, it gives one license. 
be playful and orderly in some way that I just loved as a child and still do. We interviewed Margaret Nelson, the A. Barton Hepburn Professor of Sociology Emerita at Middlebury College, about her study of family secrets, a topic I find endlessly fascinating. And so I suppose it's unsurprising that she recommends a novel by Kent Haroof that's both dear to my heart and covers its fair share of family secrets. Plain Song is a story about two middle-aged bachelors who take in a young woman who's pregnant and care for her during her pregnancy and grow to love her and the child to whom she gives birth. And the reason why I love this book is because it's about love and attachment growing when there is no genetic connection. It's about the possibility of care. It's about how care leads to love. These men are operating, I would say, without a map, How do you care for somebody? How do you help them grow into who they're going to be um, when you don't have any guidelines and just trust your instincts and your capacity for human connection? We had such a good time talking to journalist Vahini Vara about her debut novel, The Immortal King Rao. It's a dystopian story about a brilliant engineer who's born into a family of Dalit coconut farmers in India and who makes his way to the U.S., becomes the most accomplished tech CEO in the world, and eventually the leader of a global corporate-led government. The novel's unsettling both because of the world it portrays and because of how logically that world flows from ours. Here's Vahini recommending a book that informed her own, an autobiography by a famous historical figure I've always wanted to know more about. So I want to recommend Emma Goldman, the anarchist Emma Goldman's uh, autobiography, which is called Living My Life. Um, One of the subplots of my book is a fringe anarchist radical group, and they're very influenced by anarchist thought. And so I was reading a lot of anarchist philosophy, but one book that I loved um, just for its sort of realness and storytelling and characters was this autobiography by Emma Goldman who writes about her philosophy, but is also writing about the petty drama and romance and intrigue of um, being in this scene. And that really informed my book. And it's just like a, a fascinating read. Amani Perry's latest book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation, just won the National Book Award for Nonfiction. The judges called it elegantly personal and archival, predictive and bold, sweet and soulful, and most of all, true. That is, of course, a powerful recommendation to read South to America if you haven't already. Now here's Amani's recommendation, a novel that I hadn't heard of and can't wait to try. I just finished this book, which I am completely in love with, which is The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak, a British Turkish novelist. And it is a story that is driven by the 1974 beginning of the Civil War in Cyprus. And it's sort of a star-crossed lover's story, but it's also a story about trees and ecology and the There's a fig tree that is a character in the story. The perspective of the tree is this incredible philosophical meditation on where our values are, what our relationship is to land and home um, and other living beings. 
the fig tree communicates messages from flies and other bugs and stuff. <laughs> um, and it's beautiful, but it's also, it has a sort of everyday qualities, right? So there's a 16 year, an angsty 16 year old in it. I love it when a writer has a capacity to understand that the minutia of our lives, the small things in our lives don't take away from the big questions, but are actually part of them. Jackie Higgins is the author of Sentient, a book that the Washington Post calls a, quote, masterpiece of science and nature writing. Sentient examines the sensory capabilities of 13 animals and how those extraordinary powers help us humans better understand similar skills that often lie dormant within us. The book that she recommends for all of us reflects her interest in the human brain and its capacities. It's The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by renowned neurologist Oliver Sacks. He deals with the frigidity of the human experience and the diversity of our experience with such compassion. He was an incredible writer. I never tire of reading his books, but that was the first book I read of his. It's fascinating about what it means to be human. It's fascinating trying to understand what else is going on in other people's lives and how other people experience the world. You know, the, the tenacity of the human spirit. It's joyful to read. Dean Tamiko Brown-Nagin has written the definitive biography of Constance Baker Motley, a groundbreaking civil rights lawyer and the first Black woman to become a federal judge. Tamika wrote the biography in part because, in her words, far too few Americans today know Motley's name and deeds. It's fitting, then, that she recommends a book that tells the story of a family that likewise had not been given its historical due. I love many books, but the one that I will point to is Annette Gordon-Reed's The Hemingses of Monticello. It is just a masterpiece from cover to cover. The book is beautifully written and it explores the experience of being in between, you might say. So a a black person and considered inferior and enslaved, while at the same time, of course, the relationship between Jefferson and Hemings produced a child. And so I I just thought that because of the beauty with which that story of tremendous public interest was rendered, it's just one of my favorite books. Acclaimed science writer Florence Williams has written a book about her own heartbreak and the science behind heartbreak generally. How heartening that she recommends a memoir that inspired not only her work on that book, but also her renewed faith in love. One book that I think about a lot that really influenced me while I was writing Heartbreak was A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. It's about the grief he experienced after the death of his wife, Joy Davidman, in 1960. And interestingly, he wrote it under a pseudonym, which I think speaks to how kind of uncomfortable we are as a society, you know, talking about big emotions. In that book, he speaks so beautifully about what the grief feels like in his body. 
He also talks about grief as being akin to fear. That's something that I just hadn't really heard described very much, but it it completely synced up with what I was experiencing. Oh, and the other thing about that book is that his love for his wife was so beautifully rendered and it was a very late in life marriage. It was a second marriage for her. It gave me just a lot of hope too, that love is possible, love is real. I can't think of a nicer note to end on. Thanks so much for listening today and every time you've tuned in during 2022. Until next year, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.